For the first 54 years of Barbara Satin's life, almost every decision that she made was centered around hiding her transness, trying to wash it away, as she describes it. She went to seminary, joined the Marines, got married, and then when she was 54, she realized, okay, this part of me is not going away. And then I love this next part of the story. A couple of years later, when she shared with her son that she was trans, he said that he'd been waiting for her to tell him, and he'd even gone so far as to find a trans-affirming therapist for her. Here's how she describes that first appointment. She said, you know, you have lived your life as though you have been cursed by God. Have you ever stopped to think that maybe this is a blessing from God? I hadn't ever thought anything positive about what I was doing. I realized that it hadn't been much fun living it as living life as being cursed by God. I thought I would try and live it as a blessing from God. And basically that's what I've done for the last 20, almost 30 years. Since then, she has devoted her life to this ministry of presence, being a trans presence in and out of our community. And that part is crucial. This was the mid-90s, and it was clear right away to Barbara just how invisible trans people were even in self-proclaimed LGBTQ spaces. It was clear to her just how ignorant we in the community could be. Barbara set out to change that, and for her work, she's been recognized by places like the White House, she was invited by the Obama administration to speak on multiple occasions, she served as a prayer leader at President Biden's inauguration, and just this month retired from the National LGBTQ Task Force where she worked as the Faith Work Director. So without further ado, from The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A with the 87-year-old Barbara Satin. One of the reasons I was excited to talk to you was because, frankly, I don't know any other trans people who are your age. You're 87. <laughs> I hope that doesn't sound rude, but sometimes the way the general public talks about being trans, it's as if it's this crazy new thing that kids invented. And as we know, that's not true. Well, to some of us, it was just invented because when I first began to realize that I had something going on, I was maybe five or six years old. I was born in 1934, and we had no words for what was going on. We had transvestite, which today is sort of a pejorative term, but nothing else. And I knew nothing about the feelings that I had. I just, I knew what I felt, but I didn't have anything to model that after or compare it to. You know, I, I came out basically at 60. And I came out at a time when we were just beginning to be understood. So I've, it's, it's been a new experience for me, although I've lived it all my life. I didn't know what I was living. It just was something that I knew was different and probably would be a threat to me if I exposed it to other people. And so back then, without language to describe this, how were you thinking about it or how would you have described it? The fact that I felt called to, for feminine things, I was 
conflicted by the fact that I was doing guy stuff. I was in sports and all sorts of different guy-related things, but I also got great satisfaction out of watching and seeing and experiencing whenever I could things that were feminine, but again, had no connection of that to anything more than just, David, you are, that's my guy name, my legal name. David, you're just, you're weird. Something's wrong with you. And that's basically the way in which my growing up was fashioned. I knew that these weren't homosexual feelings. I didn't have attraction as David. I didn't have attraction to other guys, other men. But I knew that I would be perceived or understood by others if they ever realized my feelings, that I, I would be called probably homosexual or queer or fag, whatever was inappropriate at the time. Yeah. Basically, my life was pretty much lived, my authentic life was pretty much lived as a lie. I hid most of what I was feeling. And occasionally when I had an opportunity to, in later years, to experience being as feminine as I could be, I treated that as something very bad and sinful and something that I you know, really should never do again and always did again. And I know that growing up, Catholicism was a big part of your childhood. And as a teenager, you went to study in seminary school. Was your goal to become a priest? Absolutely. My brother, who's now deceased, but was is four years older than I am, had gone into seminary. And he was, he was my role model. He was somebody I really admired and wanted to be like. And I wanted to do the same thing he did. And I went into seminary fully committed to being a priest and realized that it probably wasn't going to go well if I continued. And part of it was after eighth grade, we went into minor seminary. We lived away from home. And my sophomore year, I was playing basketball. I was a good basketball player. And somebody threw me a pass and I completely missed it. Wasn't even paying attention because I was distracted by this vision that I saw in the upper balcony watching the game, a young girl. To this day, I don't remember what she looked like, but I can tell you exactly what she was wearing. I just loved the outfit. What was she wearing? It was a blue button-down dress, lovely sort of sateen finish to it. And it was just so feminine, so beautiful. And as I shamefacedly ran back up court, I realized that this isn't going to work. I need to leave because <laughs> this is not going away. I thought, you know, being in the environment that I was in, that all of those, quote, temptations would be gone, and they weren't. So that was my decision then to leave the seminary, go back home and, and finish high school and college. So in a perfect world, would you have wanted to continue seminary and become a priest? Probably. But I, I, you know, at, the, at that point, I had no idea that there were trans women. I didn't know, you know, I was a freshman in college walking to biology class when another student ran up to me and said, did you hear about this, this guy that went to Denmark and had sex reassignment surgery and came back as a woman? It was Christine Jorgensen. 
which is a name that probably doesn't even register with you. Of course, like the blonde bombshell, they called her. It's amazing, though, when I tell my story to to younger people, it's oftentimes, who's Christine Jorgensen? It's sort of like, wow, okay. I mean, she wasn't only the most famous like trans woman, not that we use that term at the time, but she was the most famous trans woman of the time, but also kind of like the only trans woman that anyone could name, right? Right. And, you know, she was the first American to undergo sex reassignment surgery. And it was freeing to some extent because it helped some of us understand that, oh, we're not the only ones that have these feelings. But again, these were feelings that in our own mind and based on culture, on the culture we were living in, was unacceptable. This was not something that you proudly proclaimed yourself as a trans person. So again, I had a better understanding of what I was going through, but I was also fighting what I was going through. I was trying to overcome what I was, what I was going through. We're told it was a perversion and we thought of ourselves as cursed by God. And you'd no other examples to contradict that, really. Right, right. The only examples that I had, believe it or not, the the St. Paul newspaper uh, had a column that they published twice a week called Crime and Punishment. And in it, they had all the people that were arrested for drunken driving and for being a thief and all that type of thing. And occasionally, maybe two or three times in a year, they would not, they would arrest somebody for, for being dressed as a woman, a, a guy being dressed as a woman. And they would put that person's name and address in the paper and, and, and actually describe what they were wearing. He was wearing a white blouse and a black skirt and black bra and panties. It was just weird. But it was also informative and also reassuring to those of us who are trans that, oh, I'm not the only one that has these feelings and I feel really bad for this person that got caught, but I'm not going to get caught. That was, that was the hope and the prayer. And so when you were alone, were you finding ways to express your gender, like putting on dresses or anything like that? Yeah, I would, you know, living at home as as a young adult, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, living with family, it was very difficult, but I would find something at a Goodwill store or something like that and stash it, find a place to put it on and just feel glamorous and then feel really terrible about doing that. It was a very conflicted time in my life. When I graduated from college and such, I went into the Air Force and was going to be a fighter pilot. It was the way in which many of us in the trans community at that time tried to hide who we were by being as macho as we could. I tell people that uh, at any one point, I could have raised a battalion of Marines who were trans simply because there were so many of them that went into that knowing that that would diffuse any people's feelings that, well, maybe that person's a little effeminate. No, he's a Marine. When I came out, I went into the Air Force and was in pilot training, and I came down with a kidney infection and got a medical discharge and came back home and began working in the corporate world, doing public relations. But anyway, I also fell in love and hoped that I would, by being married, that uh, being with uh, the love of my life, that I would wash away all these temptations and feelings. And I realized at about four to five months that 
they still were there. And so now what do I do? I'm committed to this relationship and I just have to make that work. And so I did and have three wonderful kids and a great wife and had a model home life. When I retired from my business career at 54, I began realizing that I needed to understand who this person was inside of me. The person finally had a name. We used to have, before the internet, we used to have computer bulletin boards. And there was a computer bulletin board based out of Mendota Heights, which is a suburb of St. Paul that was free to anybody to join. And it was an international scope around trans people. To get into it, you had to have a username. You had to have a feminine name. And so I picked Barbara Satin, Barbara after the name of the first girl that I really was attracted to both sexually and physically, just the, she was the epitome of femininity and satin as the fabric of my life. I was, I was trying to figure out how do I, how do I understand who I am without actually being able to live that? So I made the decision to leave my marriage and go live as Barbara Satin and figure out who this person really is. And did you tell your wife that that was the reason why? Not not at the time I left. Um, basically, I eventually did. I have to say, though, part of that decision to leave came from my three kids that I mentioned. My oldest son is a physical therapist. My second oldest son is a psychotherapist. And my daughter is a cosmetologist. And if you put all that together, I have the best of all worlds. If my body goes, I go to my, my oldest son. See, I go to him more often now that I'm going to be 88. If my mind goes, I can go to my second oldest. And if I needed my hair colored, which I do, I go to my daughter. So I have all the resources in place to live a great life. And I have. That's the best reason to have kids I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> my second oldest son, after I had been retired for a couple of years, asked, called me and asked me if I would go to have a ha beer and a hamburger with him and just chat. And I thought, well, this is my son going to ask dad for some advice. And it turned out not to be that at all. It was basically my son saying, you know, something's going on with you that we're really concerned about because you are so different. You are more harsh and critical, short-tempered, and that's just not you. What's, what's going on? And I said to him, Jamie, I'm going to tell you something I've never told anybody. I'm transgender. And there wasn't even a pause. And he put his hand on mine and said, you know, Dad, we've been waiting for you to tell us. They had figured it out. <laughs> and I keep telling that to people that I've worked with over the years that have struggled with their gender identity and gender expression. I said, you know, Keep in mind that you think you're living this great secret life and, you know, maybe people have already figured out what's going on with you or have suspicions of what's going on with you. My kids did. My son said, you know, would you ever think about going to see a therapist? And I said, well, I never have, but, uh, you know, I would. So he arranged to for me to go to a therapist. Wouldn't be appropriate for me to go to him nor anybody within his clinic. So we found somebody else and 
my first appointment with her, I went as Barbara and basically sat down and just sort of opened up my head and just let everything come out, all the things that I had been hiding for 60, at that point, 60 years. The feelings, the concerns, the frustration, the anger. And her reaction to me was very simple. She said, you know, you have lived your life as though you have been cursed by God. Have you ever stopped to think that maybe this is a blessing from God and that maybe God has blessed you with this gender identity and expression? I hadn't ever thought anything positive about what I was doing. And I realized that it hadn't been much fun living it as living life as, a, as being cursed by God. I thought I would try and live it as a blessing from God. And basically, that's what I've done for the last... I was 60 then, so I'm 88. That's 20, almost 30 years. It opened up a lot, and that was what basically led me to, to realize I have to figure out and live as Barbara to see what this is all about. And so that's when I left. And I'd been very, very active within the Catholic Church. I was, even though I knew I was not, I wouldn't be honored or blessed within the church, I was very active. I was the chairman of the Archbishop's Council in the Minneapolis St. Paul Archdiocese and all sorts of good stuff. I'm very proud of the things that David accomplished in his lifetime, just as I'm very proud of the things that Barbara has accomplished in hers. And I don't want to erase David. Um, I want to celebrate David. Well, I also celebrate Barbara. So when I left, I realized that there was probably no place for Barbara within the Catholic Church. And so I basically left the Catholic Church and began living life, a spiritual life on my own. And that didn't, didn't satisfy me in, in many ways, simply because I missed the idea of worshiping with community within a faith congregation. I think that's so interesting because, you know, this didn't turn you off of religion completely. I think there's a version of the story where you say that you never entered a church ever again. No, never at all. So what kept you coming back and like wanting to like seek out a religious community? I, I think it's the life that I had lived both within my birth family and within my own family was always God-centered and that meant a lot to me. And, you know, I, I thought, well, I'll just have my relationship to God on a more personal basis without the bells and whistles of uh, liturgical worship. And I realized that part of what made that so meaningful to me was the sense of community that you have with others that are worshiping in the same faith community. So I uh, decided I'd see what I could find. And I found a, an LGBTQ church in, Saint, in Minneapolis called Spirit of the Lakes. And it was the United Church of Christ congregation, which was started as a queer community, queer church. And when I walked in the door on a June morning, I quickly realized that it was an LGBT church, but they had never had a T member. The trans part of it was 
what do we do now? In fact, the music director at the time was quite appalled and came up to me about six months later and said, you know, you walked in the door and I thought he should not be here. He should go someplace else. Oh, my God. And he put his arms around me and he said, you are the best thing that's happened to this church in many, many years. Thank you for being here. And I realized that and a number of other things made me realize what my calling was going to be. And the, the idea that I was sort of this anomaly within this LGB-focused church led to the fact that the pastor was involved with a national arm of the, of the United Church of Christ called the, the LGBT Coalition, United Church of Christ Coalition. They have a national gathering every year. And they had never had a conversation around the, the T part of LGBT. And I was asked if I would do a plenary session around what it means to have a trans person in the church. I'm sorry, but what, what year was this? Was this like the early 2000s? This would be, no, it would be 1990, uh, late, late 1990s, like 1996, 97. Late 90s, okay. So they asked me if I would do this, and I I was apprehensive because I really had just been out and I was just still feeling my own way. But I realized it was so important for them to have this conversation. And so I said, yes. And I realized not right away, but a couple of days later, all I did was tell my story. And it had an impact on people to get to know someone who is transgender and understand who they are and what it means in their lives and the blessings and the sufferings that go with that, but also the authenticity that it brings to their lives to be able to live that fullness of who they are. And so when you say that you discovered your calling, is, is that how you would verbalize it, like to share your story? Right. It's what I basically have made my ministry of presence. I realized that my ability to be out, and at that time that still was a challenge, my ability to be out as Barbara had an impact on people. Some of it good, occasionally some of it bad. For the most part, it was good. And I had, you know, an openness to be willing to talk to people about who I am and what is inside of me and what's inside of trans people. And I think part of the reason why the choir director came up to me and said, you know, you're the best thing that's happened to this church in many, many years was the fact that you were willing to be as open and forthright about who you are and who we are as trans people. I became involved with the coalition group of the, of the UCC, eventually became their chair, and then was asked to become a member of the executive council of the United Church of Christ. This is the, the governing body of a denomination that basically doesn't like to be governed. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a wonderful organization. I know that you spent many years also at the uh, National LGBT Task Force, where you just retired from. 
you spent so many years being so productive, for lack of better words. Like, are there things you still, like, have that you want to do? Or are you, like, I don't want to say winding down, but are you, I mean, yeah, I'll just say it. Like, are you, do you feel like you're, like, winding down? I just received yesterday a a letter of affirmation and commendation from the leadership of the United Church of Christ, acknowledging the fact that I was retiring and thanking me for all the work that I'd done with the task force, but all the work that I'd done within the United Church of Christ. I was blown away by it. I responded to them and said, you know, um, I'm not done, but I don't know what's next. I guess that's sort of in the hands of God because basically all of this has been not something that I planned. It was basically opportunities that I was offered and I was willing to to take on. So I want to spend time with my my family. I went back to my marriage and, and uh, my wife and I are growing old together and it's fun. Some mornings when you get out of bed, it's not doesn't feel like fun, but for the most part, it's fun. It's a wonderful time in our lives, and I want to enjoy that with her. But I'm also realizing that there may be things that I understand from what people, the way people respond to what I've done, that I have visibility that I never really thought about. So we'll see whether there are other things that I can do that would be of value. The ministry of presence still is an important part of who I am. Is that a terminology that you created? To some extent, yeah. Actually, a seminarian, a young seminarian, had had used it about me, you know, something along the lines of what you're doing is like this ministry of presence. And I thought, well, I wanted to be a minister, and I'll just take that on. When I first began exploring who Barbara was, I became involved with a trans group in the Twin City area called City of Lakes Cross-Gender Community. And we had about 400 members. Wow. Yeah. That's a ton. Oh, yeah. But you'd never know it because we we met in the basement of a gay bar in St. Paul. And you never knew when the meetings were going to be or the time because it was so secret. You You had to be, you had to go through two different interviews to even get accepted and then you had to have you know access to the information about when the meetings are going to be you know we had people standing at the doors sort of a sergeant at arms type of thing it was a scary time for people they they wanted the opportunity to be together and to sort of be with people like themselves and to you know talk about their concerns get fashion tips and makeup hints and all that type of thing but we were meeting in the basement of a gay bar, and and we we're part of this LGBT acronym. And we would, I would often get. I eventually became the president of the organization, and I kept getting comments from people. I'm not, I'm not gay. I'm not queer. Why are we in a gay bar? And I would say, well, it's the only place that would accept us. That they don't care who we are. They don't know who we are. They don't respect who we are. They don't affirm who we are. They just, they're sort of apathetic to who we are, but they don't mind us being there and buying drinks and having food. And 
having our meeting once or twice a month. So I realized that, you know, part of our problem as a trans community was the fact that as part of this LGBT acronym, the LGB part of it didn't care or understand who we were and they needed to. So I basically left the city of Lakes group to fend for itself. And they did very well. They were, they found other leaders and I began to make it my job to become active within primarily gay organizations. And so I don't think there's more than maybe one or two gay organizations within the Twin Cities that I wasn't on their board because I felt it was so important for them to have an understanding of who we are and to actually see somebody and interact with somebody and to know and respect a trans person as as a as a positive role model for their organization. And so I've been on activist groups, I've been on philanthropic groups, I've been on HIV AIDS groups. If there was a if there was a gay group that I knew somebody who uh, was part of it, I would ask them, is there any interest in having a trans person on that board? So I that was part of the early part of my ministry of presence, which at that point I didn't realize was a ministry, but it was it was so important for the trans community to be visible to the LGB community. It's not as though the trans community is separate. You're in a same-sex marriage. Right, right. And, you know, as as Barbara, I have uh, an attraction to men, which I didn't, I don't have as David. That's a dichotomy in my mind that I, I still don't understand. Oh, so you were 60 in realizing that you're also bi. Mm-hmm. Oh, how funny. I know, I know. <laughs> so my connection to the task force goes back to the fact that in 2006, and they realized after they had, after the queer community basically had lost a number of fights around marriage equality, particularly in uh, California, that the way in which faith communities were successful in anti-queer stuff, it was basically a question of the fact that progressive faith communities hadn't been approached or provided the opportunity to do things around progressive issues and LGBT issues. And it's it's been a marvelous experience because we focused on the idea of helping churches understand why it was important for them to be welcoming and affirming to LGBTQ people. And uh, we have been very, very successful in that. Then the next step was to take that affirmation and take it outside of the of the four walls of the church and take it out into the streets. And we've been relatively successful in that. For a lot of denominations, doing activism isn't in their DNA. But for many organizations, many religious denominations, that's how you live out your life is to actually be active and proactive around around issues. And that's been this delightful trajectory that I've been on for the last 14, 15 years. And it's almost like 
directly contradictory to the first like 60 years of your life where every single decision and profession you chose as you said was chosen to like wash away your transness right to like hide this and now the last 15 it's like trans forward this trans ministry of presence as you said i marvel at, at the journey i've been on and it's been one that i've been blessed to be given the opportunities and thrilled that i had the time, energy, and courage to step forward and say, I'll do that. Can I ask you, as a spiritual and religious person, has that colored how you think about death and what happens after? As I said earlier, I want both David and Barbara to be honored. And and David has a large, growing smaller simply because of our age. I have a large contingent of people who know who I am as David and all the things that I've done as David. They, in many cases, have no understanding of Barbara. And so I'm going to have, I'm going to be cremated. I'm going to have two funerals. David will have his funeral and probably the bells and whistles of the Catholic Church. And uh, Barbara will have her memorial service, whatever that might be, within the United Church of Christ and and whoever else wants to come and pay tribute or condolences. I've done some really wonderful things as David, things that I thought could just disappear if people found out who I was. I'm not concerned about that now because I have shown as Barbara that I do the same things as part of my DNA, whether I'm Barbara or David, that I I work to try and make things better for people, including myself. And uh, I want to share that to whoever wants to come and not mourn, come and rejoice with me. I mean, is death something that's present in your mind, something you're thinking about? I guess my, my Catholic background gives me the, uh, an understanding that there's something more and what that is will be unveiled to me when it's time. But I have so much of it when I was growing up, my concern was that I was going to go to hell. Um, I don't believe that anymore. I don't particularly believe it. As Barbara, I think that what I have done, what others like me have done in living our authentic lives is just a blessing that will be treated as a blessing when we pass. I have to let you go, but thank you for spending so much time today. Thank you for being willing to listen. (laughs) And that was Barbara Satin. Big thank you to the task force for connecting us. And if you enjoyed this interview, it is part of our brand new series, all focused on LGBTQ plus elders, people like the incredible Cleve Jones. The reality is that the gayberhoods are going away. Whether we're talking about people like myself who are getting old, long-term survivors of HIV, or queer kids, trans kids who are fleeing Trump's America, where did they go? They can't come to the Castro. A little crappy studio apartment in the Castro is going to cost you $2,500 a month. Many people will say, oh, well, we can live anywhere we want. No, you can't. Ha! Don't tell me that. Try it. You know, go to Duluth and walk down Main Street and hold hands. No offense to Duluth or any other city you might want to try doing that outside of a neighborhood. So we need these these spaces. They're important, and we need to figure out what's our next move. 
That full interview with Cleve is available now in our podcast feed. There is also a link to it in our show notes. And if you enjoy this podcast, we have one request. Please help us by pulling out your phone right now and taking a screenshot of this episode with Barbara. Then post it on your social medias and tag us. Things like that really do make a huge difference. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at JeffMasters1. The show's on there at LGBTQPod. I will see you on all of those right as soon as you post those screenshots. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with The Glad. We'll see you next week. 